everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Quirks of Creation. I'm Jess Holmes, and here is my favorite proton to my electron, my favorite quirk to my quack, Elise. So excited to have you guys here tonight. What are we talking about today, Elise? Yay! Well, yeah, so welcome back, everybody. Super glad to have you here. Super glad to be here. Um, so like we said last week, this is kind of a part two of our talk on the fossil record. Uh, last week, Jess talked about carbon dating, other types of dating, as well as the assumptions made and the general beliefs in that narrative. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend you go and listen to it or watch it. Um, but I also think this episode kind of stands alone. They definitely complement each other, but you don't have to go back and listen to that first. So. <laughs> That's totally fair. We already have our first rumble rant from wartime propaganda. I paid for this rumble rant and all I got was this stupid shout out. Well, that's what you got, wartime propaganda. That's and I it. guess we should give uh, Conspiracy Pill the shout out because I guess he's on a podcast or something. I've, I so. might have heard of it. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's like this. I guess you guys should go follow it. It's okay. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as quirky, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um. So tonight I'm calling this episode Neglected Evidence because there are some perspectives here, two major ones that really that I want to share that I don't think we hear of a lot in the mainstream. Um, so I'm going to start with some foundational aspects and then get into the evidence I have that kind of talks about uh, actually things we've talked about before, which, yeah, Jess and I are kind of finding it funny that this particular thing keeps coming up, but We'll get into that. Don't worry. Ooh, we'll get I'm into so that. excited. <laughs> so let's start at the bottom, like the rock bed of this subject. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> A bad joke. Yeah, We're not good. even two minutes into this and right. I'm throwing out bad have. jokes. <laughs> You're welcome. I love it. No, we need <laughs> jokes. We need jokes. I didn't write any puns in here, but I'm sure there'll be some that pop up. Yeah. If we'll you chisel some, some out. Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna People stop. Gonna listen to this and be like, "What is wrong with them?" I know a lot. What with me? Oh. I'm gonna speak for me. Yeah, a lot. A lot. Yeah. If you haven't figured, welcome to the yet. show. Yeah. Yay. Uh, so some of the foundational stuff that we'll start with, like, what is a fossil? <laughs> what it is? You might have learned about them in sixth grade, but in case you forgot, right? Or if you just weren't listening like me there maybe or if sixth grade for you was in the middle of the lockdowns and oh. you didn't actually pay attention in school right nobody had time for that nobody had time for that <laughs> it's much more fun to play minecraft than sit and listen to virtual teacher absolutely <laughs> if you turned off your camera i heard that the teacher was like they thought you were there I don't know. I had students who would point yeah. their camera up to their ceiling fan and I would like see their eyebrows <laughs> and you know that they were doing something else. Yeah. You know that this you knew. Was... Like you're not like... fooling me. Clever children. Not so much. <laughs> anyway, yes. So and also I am touching a little bit more on the sciencey subject. So if something mm -hmm. I'm explaining doesn't if I'm not explaining it well, I know Jess is here to back me up and like what she means is, <laughs> so at least, so we're good. We're going to, it's going to be we great. It. It's going to be fun. So fossils, fossils are the preserved remains or trace remains of organisms 
Um, fossils are not the remains themselves, but they're rocks. So a fossil can preserve an entire organism or just part of one. And there's a few that I'll touch on briefly just to, you know, just a, just a refresher. Just kind just of poke refresh. and prod them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so first up, we have trace fossils. And trace yeah. fossils, or ichnofossils, excuse me. Uh, they don't contain anything of the organism itself, but mm. what is left behind or traces of its, exi ah. of its existence. <laughs> so, you know, when we leave a footprint, like when we walk through the mud, for example, it doesn't get fossilized. I'll get into that in a minute. But trace fossils can tell us a lot of things still like the size of an animal, the number of legs, how they moved, what speed they moved at. Um Basically, it's any fossil that explains activity of the organism. Or, you know, other examples would be like burrows, footprints, root cavities, even feces. Yeah, you're welcome. So, so could a trace fossil tell us the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Right. Nothing That's what I've always wanted to know. Right. Probably not, but I'm sure you can make plenty of assumptions. They make plenty of assumptions. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about that too. That's true. <laughs> Another one is a mold fossil. Okay. So mold fossils are um, fossils that happen when a plant or animal dies and is covered by sediment. The flesh decays and the bone deteriorates. And it leaves this cavity below the ground surface. So it's taking up negative space. Okay. Um, whereas... So that's like a lot of those shell-type fossils, right? Yeah. So like this ah. one. Ah, so on I the... remember something. <laughs> you, you got this. So on the left side, there's the mold fossil. And then the next, which is the cast fossil. Um, so when the mold fossil is formed, it's then filled in by surrounding materials or minerals, mm. excuse me, that hardened to create a solid rock. This process is called pre-mineralization. And it's a replica of the original organism. So whereas the mold fossil is negative space, the cast fossil takes up positive space. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so then how is this... Um, well, I guess it makes sense. A, a trace fossil is just like an imprint left behind. Yeah. Yep. So this one, the, the mold fossil makes sense to me because it's basically forming around an mm -hmm. organism as it's dying. Then it, you know, decays and whatever. Right. And then and nothing... you have that imprint left. Right. But how is that like, like that footprint preserved? I don't know. And I like did not have time because that was like a big question for me. And I didn't have time to dig into it. <laughs> but um, uh... I didn't mean that one. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, too many puns. Too many. There are there are going to be everywhere. But I didn't have time to get into it really. But that was always nagging in the back of my mind. So if you have a footprint and it's right. covered by sediment, wouldn't it just fill fill in, and it would would not be there? Or like if root cavities decayed, wouldn't you think the the dirt would just like. Right. Does that make so, any sense? No, no, it does make sense. So basically for you audio listeners who can't see at least yeah. her awesome <laughs> hand motions, um, 
it's basically this idea that something would have to fill in whatever gap was made. Just like if you think about walking on the beach, you're leaving behind footprints. The waves wash more sand back over your footprints and other things to basically wash the footprint away. And you would think over time that would happen too. I guess these have to be very unique circumstances in which it has to be a a type of mold right? that creates the trace. It's just so, it happens so instantaneously. Like when you take a mold, uh, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've seen lots of people do like molds of their pets' paw prints. Mm, mm -hmm. Like you push it into some sort of clay and then you give it a chance to harden Mm -hmm. and it has that shape. So whatever material that's taking that mold has to be something similar, I would think. I would think so too. And I think as we get into it more, that'll probably make more sense. You can you can help me connect the dots. There's more fan gestures for everybody. Yes. Connect the dots. <laughs> I do have to say I love this running theme, this running joke that we have every episode. <laughs> somebody, and it's not always the same person. So right. Somebody jumps in and they're like, I'm here, start over. Literally, I do that to every stream that I, I watch it. that today. It's Abby Olivia on Rumble. She says, I'm here, start over. Every single time. I'm always late to every stream that I ever watch. Me so. too. I'm late to every We just started, so you're good. Yeah. You didn't really miss much. If you missed... You just uh, missed the puns. Yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah. dig some more up for you. Yeah. <laughs> like that one. And weird hand gestures, but don't worry, I have more. <laughs> so the next one, this is going to be a joke. I'm warning you. It's probably not good. But I'm going to do it anyway. We're like connection. That's probably not good. But I'm going to do it anyway. So uh, I – do you like football? I do like football. Me too. Yay. Yay. <laughs> you, you guys found the only two girls on the whole internet yeah. who like football. We like Congratulations. Football. Yeah. Yeah, I love football. Um, but even even though I love it, I can follow a game. And if I'm lucky, I can actually see like a bad call from a ref and get mad and – be legit That's about it. That's the best part. Like, I know sports. Yeah. I knew that one. <laughs> but I'm, I'm still not great at telling you like who's who on the field. That's because um, all their names sound the same. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> he and Beale skin? <laughs> I was like, it's amazing. It, it, it's funny because it's true. It's funny because it's true. Yeah. And that's, that's it. And then I think it doesn't matter how illiterate you may be with football I'd say nine times out of ten people can at least name one position and that's Mm. the quarterback so everybody knows who the quarterback is in football you can always point to him body fossils are the quarterbacks of fossils Uh, (laughs) you're welcome I love it I love it super roundabout way of saying these are probably the most popular what everybody thinks of when you look at a fossil is um, body fossils and they're, you know, bones, teeth. This one here is a triceratop or a, nope, nope, no, Cause there's not three horns, but it is just the skull. And again, usually bones, teeth, shells, so on and so forth. Right. It's very rare to find like a full body fossil. Right. <laughs> But I think that's kind of like what we think of when we see these. So 
that's another, that's the other one. And then the last one I'll talk about is called a true form fossil. And this one is like, uh, when you think of Jurassic Park and the amber and the mosquito. Ooh. And so this one's a spider trapped in amber. Oh, come on. Oh, no, sorry. I won't share this for, I won't share this very long. But yeah, you get the idea. There it is. <laughs> I didn't know you didn't like spiders or I wouldn't have shared that one. <laughs> no, it's fine. The people needed to see it. I just right. didn't. No, it's great. I should have warned you. <laughs> I'll remember that for next time. <laughs> now she's going to find all the spider images and just be like, here you go. Here's a giant one. Just pop them up randomly. <laughs> yeah. So true form fossils are when an entire organism is trapped in amber or sap. And it helps us get a more complete picture of whatever's encased in that. Um, and it gives paleontologists like a more accurate examination, of course, of the material. Okay, cool. Fossils touched up on some of them. <clears throat> Woohoo, you're caught up. I love it. But the next question is then how are these things made? Like, can this just happen all the time? Does this happen often? It's a very specific set of circumstances that need to occur in order for a fossil to be created. Um, typically, you know, when an animal dies or plant dies, whatever, they decay very quickly. Um, it needs to be protected. So like an animal dies and other predators come and eat it or worms or whatever, decays, the bones deteriorate, all that jazz. For a fossil to occur, the organism needs to be um, buried rapidly. Right. So um, I keep losing my place. Sorry, you guys. No, you're good. Everybody in the Rumble Chat also hated the spider. Oh, you're welcome. Everybody. <laughs> I didn't even it. think about that. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's something oh. trapped in amber. There we go. We got to traumatize our audience somehow. Yeah. Yeah. No trigger warnings here. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so these things are buried rapidly in sediment, sand or silt and whatever. So that protects them from like the oxygen predators, all that jazz. Right. And it also compresses because heavy sediment yeah. on top layers up on top. Again, without the hand gestures, I don't know how you guys are going to get any of this. But For those of you guys who are missing out on the <laughs> hand gestures, audio-wise, this is just like what you think of when you think of uh, sedimentary layers. If you've ever seen like the layers of the Grand Canyon, the only reason we have such pretty defined layers is because over time, each layer is compacted by pressure and weathering and new layers of sediment can be built on top and then that compresses and you just get this continuous cycle of a layer compress layer compress um it, i think of it kind of like a tiramisu because it's kind of oh. like you got these nice stacked layers that's a good one though like you probably that. shouldn't compress a tiramisu because it's supposed to be like light and fluffy so delicate yeah <laughs> now i'm hungry <laughs> once so once this like rapid burial takes place the bones are replaced by minerals that are transported in through groundwater they turn the bone into stone again that permineralization 
and the bones are preserved within the rocks until they're uncovered, whether it's through erosion or excavation. Ta-da! There, there so it it's is. not actually like how we think of our calcium bones. It's these mineralized bones that you're thinking about the body fossils. Yes. Thank you. Exactly. Perfect. Um, yeah. So that's the basics of fossils and how they're formed and yada, yada. I love it. <laughs> yada, yada. But I want to break it down a little bit further and just, I'm going to keep asking a lot of questions. So in this one, you know, like what is sediment and the uh, explanation that I found, I just, I just liked how this one sounded. So it's from fondriest.com, which is an mm. environmental learning center, I suppose. But I guess they, pro- they probably know what they're talking about. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I always get suspicious when I hear environmentalists. It's like sometimes they have really good stuff and then sometimes it's propaganda. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. You tell me what you think of this. So okay. uh, it says, Quote, sediment refers to the conglomerate of materials, organic and inorganic, that can be carried away by water, wind, or ice, while the term is often used to indicate soil-based mineral matter, like clay, silt, and sand, decomposing organic substances and inorganic biogenic material are also considered sediment. Yes, I like that. I, I do like the inclusion of organic material because mm-hmm. the, this is something I actually had to teach a lot and environmental science is, yeah, we do think sand, salt, and clay are the primary components because that's what you think of when you think of dirt. Right. But you forget dirt also has like dead things in it. Organic so material. Yeah. It's going to have, yeah, organic material mm-hmm. in it. Yay. Oh, we have the best pun of the night, I think. It's sedimentary, dear Watson, <laughs> by Base Babe. So good. Mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> you got her. That was really good. That was really good. This one. Oh man, I'm gonna remember that. And if there's not a meme, <laughs> I'm gonna be sad if there's not a meme at the end of that. <laughs> uh, that was really. Good. I'm sorry. That was a good one. That was really good. That was good. I like it. I got nothing. I'm... Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> Uh, so with the sediment, basically the sediment needed to rapidly bury these animals or plants, fish, whatever. Is it fair to say that, that it's mud? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. To, not to overly simplify it, but. But if you also wanted to, to simplify, simplify it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's mud. It's mud. So again, a conglomerate of materials, organic and inorganic and water. The water's water is important because you don't get like if it's just like dirt. It, it can crumble and fall away. You need that compaction of the water so it settles as it dries. Just like you think of taking the mold of your pet's paw print, you need right. it to be wet in order for it to take shape before it dries out. Yes, exactly. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very key piece. Yes. Um, so put a pin in this because we're going to come back to this very important um, but you know what I always come back to, even when it's late at night and I shouldn't drink it? <laughs> North Arrow coffee. Love it. <laughs> uh, so this delicious coffee is not only wonderful and fantastic, but it also saves lives. It's pro-life 
um, oriented. So it donates 15% of all proceeds to pro-life charity. It's single origin and roast to order. So treat yourself to some delicious coffee and save some babies by using Quirks 10 to get 10% off your order. And that, my friends, is something to raise your mug to. I love Cheers. it. Woo-hoo. I love that you have the pitcher mug today. It's a big mug. Mm-hmm. It's a good mug. I need this one today. Just keep chugging it. And by the end of this, I'll be shaking. <laughs> yes. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Okay. So all this to set up that we, you know, we have fossils. We have the idea of how they're formed and the material needed to do so. There's a little bit more to the fossil record. Um, we Last week, just did an amazing job of explaining the different ways. Oh, yeah. It was, that was another chef's kiss right there. That was awesome. Aw. Yeah. Um, so she, you know, she explained the ways scientists date organic material. Um, I'm not really going to touch on that, of course, because we already did. I am going to talk about the geological time scale more so. Okay. Yes. So, which we didn't really. Nope, nope, nope. Look at, I did it. I didn't mean to. Oh, sorry. Close your eyes. I'm really sorry. She put the spider <laughs> back on the screen. I already did. <sighs> Can I blame it Usually on I blame conspiracy pills for my nightmares. Tonight I'm blaming my own show. How does that happen? It's my turn. Sorry. <laughs> Let's share this one instead. So this is much safer. <laughs> I promise. And it oh, just yeah. shows the geological t- time scale, um, which you can... You said, well, you share this with your kids all the time, yeah. right? I, um, I get dizzy looking at this. I know. I know. Yeah. So if you aren't, if you're listening and not seeing this, it breaks down all the different periods, you know, the Cenozoic, Mesozoic, Paleozoic, and the Precambrian. Right. And then, but below each one of those, it breaks down even further. I don't even want to pretend like I... I don't even want to, I don't want to read this. I just wanted y'all to see how like crazy this scale is. So there you go. I I do like this image because I do think it shows you so much detail. And this is the thing I always come back to that stresses me out when (laughs) I think about the fossil record is there's so much detail with each of these different periods that they have and different, you know, just the geologic time scale is so detailed, but they want me to believe that they got it based on these fossils that they found that it, it here's a little uh, spoiler from last week from dating methods that aren't necessarily accurate or reliable or reliable <laughs> or yeah. are based on lots of assumptions. You're going to mm-hmm. give me all of those details from basically a toss in the dark. We've got a lot more assumptions too with Ooh. this, but I'm going to share. It's just, yeah, it just plays off of that. So there's that mess, which again is great in its detail, but also dizzying. Um, so in the late 1700s, there was James Hutton, who was a Scottish geologist, and he wasn't the first to propose, but he built on the idea that the older stuff in the rock layer is at the bottom and the newer stuff is on top, which just makes sense. But it was still kind of this, it was still a eureka moment, if if you will. You know, it wasn't, right. you had to discover that to keep moving on. I right. Don't know. No, that makes sense. <laughs> which makes sense. Yeah. 
today, you know, all these years later, we're like, duh, but no, it's a big deal. Um, older on the bottom, newer on the top. And each layer represents a specific interval of geological time. How much time? Well, that's kind of, that's like anyone's guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, they've sectioned it off. You have in your notes, like how they talked about mm-hmm. the different periods. Okay. I'm not spoiling. Well, no, go ahead. Because I think I can, go ahead. I don't think you'll spoil it. Well, yeah, they, we think of like the Cretaceous period and the Jurassic period. And these are all just like different fragments of time based on certain uh, temperature uh, ranges, certain types of fossils they found. They base this on the evolutionary line too, like how developed certain organisms were, things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So alongside Hutton was William Smith, who was like the civil engineer and surveyor. And he realized that certain fossils were found in one layer, different fossils were found in another layer, and so on and so forth. Um, So this is a quote from an article on the United States Geological Survey site. It says, using these key or index fossils as markers, Smith could identify a particular layer of rock wherever it was exposed. Because fossils actually record the slow but progressive development of life, scientists use them to identify rocks of the same age throughout the world. From the results of studies on the origins of various kinds of rocks, petrology, coupled with the study of rock layering, strata, stratigraphy. I can't Strato- read it. Thank stratigraphy? You. Stratography? S-T-R-A-T-I-graphy. <laughs> cool. Yep, that one. That one. Where you look at strata. <laughs> yes. And graphy. That's right. All, all together. There you go. <laughs> And then the evolution of life, paleontology. Geologists reconstruct the sequence of events that has shaped the Earth's surface, end quote. Yeah, so all of this, here's where I'm going to go off my notes and just, we're just going to chat. Because the thing is, all of this is based off of or is superimposed by the idea of uniformitarianism, that principle, and evolution. Right. So you already have to believe in these things and agree with these things. Like that's your control, if you will. Um, That's how you're measuring these things. Where to start? So with with the layers, you, again... He's using fossils as like the key indicators these right. um, to, to date things. But the problem with that is that, um, you know, the markers, when he was doing this late 1700s, early 1800s, they hadn't even really begun to find fossils. And they were already using what had been found to start um, dating things. So it was like a very small uh, scale, if you will, right, to start this dating process. So there's like one kind of tick in the box for me where it's like, hmm, does that make sense? And then again, go ahead. I know you got something to say. Well, I, I was just going to like define indicator fossils yeah. uh, for everybody because like when I, I heard of that, I, th- I think I 
you think you know what it is and just to like make sure we all know what it is an indicator fossil is a fossil that appears pretty i'll i'll call it like a standard right you see it in a particular layer around the world and they've connected it to a certain period in time so if you think of ammonite fossils right those ones that have the spiral they're connected to a very specific period other types of fossils like we think of the t-rex right we always think of it connected to as a certain period in geological time these would be indicators that this particular layer of rock belongs to this particular geological time right exactly thank you yes and that's pretty uniform throughout right all over you know, like you would see that here in America, you'd see the same thing in Europe or Africa, wherever, you know, right. is that fair to say? Yeah. For or the so mo- they I mean, claim. Or so they claim. Right. Again, and I'm not trying to oversimplify anything here either, but just right. in general. Um, so with that and the rock layers, and then we've seen this though, we've seen this with layering and we've talked about it before. And I think it's something we've talked about before that really defines all of this that I've already talked about or touched on at least is the flood, Mm. the flood. So we'll go back to the fossils and you need rapid burial of sediment. You need rapid burial of mud. And how would, how would you get that? It would, it would make sense to me that a global catastrophic event such as a flood would create the environment you need to create these fossils. And again, this doesn't happen all the time. And when you find fossils too, so what's also unique and also goes against the grain with evolution, if you will, is when you look at all the layers, you don't see before or after, like it all just kind of starts right here. Right. When you look at the fossils. So again, this big catastrophic event, which I know that you all can also argue like the comet, right? That's a big right. one. But, you know, not meteor. everybody even believes in like the, uh, you think the comet that killed the dinosaurs, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or the giant meteor that killed all the dinosaurs. That killed all the dinosaurs. It, that would be called an extinction level event. So. Yes. Um, yeah, right. What we learn about is that there were lots of different mass extinction level events. There were five in history. Yep. And in theory, we're undergoing the sixth mass extinction event now. And the way that's defined is there's a massive loss of species throughout time. So, of course, they're blaming it on climate change now. Whatever. <laughs> um. We'll save that one for another one. Yeah, that's a different, that's a different episode. Yeah. And those five ones that they claim, so it was like 450 million years ago, 400, then 250, then 200 million, and then 65 million years ago. Right. Based on what you can see in uh, the layers. And with that too, these also point to a an extinction event that involved water. Hmm. So, but, okay. So then the question is, they have all these distinct layers. Right. So how did they get these distinct layers? We're saying it's one big event that did all of this. Right. Whereas their their science is saying, you know, we see you have it to have multiple five like, different times. Smaller events. 
I guess I shouldn't say smaller because they're saying the one that killed the dinosaurs was like 85% of all life on Earth. Right, right. So that's, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. But if we go back again, when we talked about the flood, we also talked about Mount St. Helens. Right. And you talked about this last week, too. So in Mount St. Helens, 1980, which I think I said 86 last time. No, 1980. Okay. Huge volcanic eruption, but yet not. I mean, it was huge in that we witnessed it. We were here. You know, maybe not we, but it was very recent. If you were alive during the 80s, I was not. You were here for it. You 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 were here for it. it. You might remember it. I don't know. But it was very recent, especially in these terms. Right. Very recent event. But also a very small event in um, comparison to other volcanic eruptions. Uh, But it still had a major impact on Washington and all the surrounding areas. I mean, it was, again, huge. (laughs) Reno Rob remembers. That's good. He remembers everything. I remember. <laughs> Prepridge Farm remembers. I was going to say that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what we learned from Mount St. Helen was that a lot of layers, a lot of geological layers can be created in a very small amount of time. Right. So this was created, well, 25 feet of... Thick geological, you know, layers was created in about three hours after that. And so this very small scale volcanic eruption created all these layers within three hours. So if you extrapolate that to, let's say the flood, which the flood, if you think about it, you know, sometimes I, I get carried away and I think like, oh, you know, Noah is in his boat and there's just rain right. and it was raining for 40 days. No, it was it was rain. It was the ground opening up and water coming out and with and the ground to move for water to come out. That means tectonic plates are shifting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They there had to, to move. be a massive tectonic plate shift right. in order to allow all of that underground water <clears throat> to just like burst out. Exactly. Exactly. So, so much, so much, uh, like a catastrophe just seems underwhelming compared to what that must have been. I just, um, so again, you see Mount St. Helens and you see these layers and it kind of, you can think of how that, but what also happens when you have tectonic plates shifting and water is a tsunami. Exactly. Yes. And so what I want to say about that, which I found very interesting, is this idea of um, cross-bedding. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I haven't really either. But from what I gather, (laughs) cross-bedding, so like with a sand dune, for example. Mm. um, You have the wind carrying the sand. Right. And when it um, does this, like you're seeing in the picture, you see this... uh, Sandstone, Mount Mount Carmel okay. is what I'm showing everybody right now. You can see angled layers in the face of this. And I love this because you, so often you'll come across these strange 
buildups of sedimentary layers and people don't know how to explain it. And I think this is a good one. Like for those of you who can't see it, it truly is like it, it almost looks, I don't want to say looks like almost a 45 degree angle, yeah. but going like in an X pattern. So there'd be some layer in the left direction, some layer in the right direction. And they're just kind of like folding on top of each other. If you believe in uniformitarianism, you don't know how to explain this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or if you do, it goes against right. what you're saying. So yeah. So, but and what's cool about these angles too is, and what's cool about this sandstone, this also happens underwater. This happens underwater too. Ooh. So when sediment is moved by water, you can look at the angles that have created this. And based on the angle, you can calculate the velocity that the water was moving at the time of this happening. And when you do that, it show when you see this underwater, when you, or even here, you know, like it was underwater and now it's not. The velocity would calculate to tsunami speeds. That is so cool. So, and, and it makes sense that you could do those types of calculations because I'm just thinking of like m my very bare understanding of like physics and trigonometry and things like that. Like angles tell you a lot of things and can tell yeah. you a lot about velocity. Right. So, yeah. Didn't know you could calculate these things, but you can and that's what you get. And I find it. Just it's just another tick on the box for me for at least a global catastrophic flood. Right. And what's also interesting with that too is that when you have these rock layers, these patterns, they're uniform throughout the world. Mm -hmm. They're very similar. So if you're having one mm -hmm. big global catastrophic flood, you would assume that these layers would be all the same because it's happening everywhere. When, and the, the way evolutionists say it is like, well, you know, there were floods, but they were localized and they're not all at the same time. And um, that kind of tells us how we have dinosaur fossils. You know, they didn't all just drown. It was local floods that happened. And it's like, okay, granted that could happen. However, it wouldn't create this, you can look at the geological layers in America and they would be very similar to what you would find in Africa or what you would right. find in Asia, Europe, right. all over the world. It would be very similar, just like flood stories can be pretty similar throughout the world because maybe they're all connected. Weird. Throwing that out there. I think I made that claim already, but still. <laughs> I think it's worth reiterating because everything we're presenting in these episodes, just kind of trying to break down this assumption that science can tell you everything and that yeah. science cannot be challenged and that the fossil record cannot be challenged. It's absolute fact. Yes. And that it's proof that a global flood never happened. Is it though? But is it? And that's the thing is when you, so, you know, I'm not here to be like, we're right, they're wrong, we got it sure. all figured out. No. However, I do like presenting different pieces of evidence, like I said, that maybe is like, hmm, I'm questioning the narrative. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. So again, might not be able to answer everything, but there are questions. It's okay to question and look into it. And that's, that's what I found with this. If I was asking questions, here we are. <laughs> asking more questions. Asking more questions. Following me on my ram- r- rambling, but you know. A good um, example of this, because you don't really find anywhere that has just a very distinct column with all the layers to explain um, the timeline. Right. right. The closest is in the Grand Canyon, actually. Mm. I want to say that it's like 300 meters, which I didn't, I didn't calculate into feet because <laughs> I... I, just I think there's like three it. feet and a meter. Is that three feet yeah. in a yard? Whatever. Same thing. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. It's a lot of feet. Yeah. It is a lot of feet. It's a lot of feet. A lot of <laughs> tiny little feet. Yes. In the Grand Canyon that shows, again, all the different layers. What's interesting about this too, you have all these layers showing the different timelines. And again, if you're taking each layer and it represents a different time. Right. There is a problem in that there's no sign of erosion in between any of these layers. Like they all just they just kind of piled at up. once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's why I like that la- uh, the image you showed of Mount Saint Helen. So if you guys are just listening again, it's like those tiramisu layers. Like you can't tell that anything has that time has passed in between Mm -hmm. the layers like they're so neatly stacked on one another some of them are really thin some of them are really broad but you can see the stacking of the sediment and the same thing is true in the grand canyon you don't get this you don't get any indication of erosion between the layers which is so massively important because erosion indicates passage of time. Right. And if you can't find the erosion, then how can you assume that there's been any passage of time? And that's just my question for that one. (laughs) This is like the area of the Grand Canyon where it can be found. I couldn't find a specific picture of the column, but if you see the Grand Canyon, there it is. It's beautiful. I would love to go. It's on my list, like of places to go. Never been. Someday. Someday. This is why we need your rumble rants, guys. So drop us those <laughs> rumble rants and help us fund our trip to the Grand Canyon. So we can do a it's live for episode. for. That's right. It's for work. <laughs> Not a vacation. It's for work. <laughs> and I think this is a good place to plug our locals. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. So, guys. <laughs> if I'm making you, you do it. Do it. If you guys haven't subscribed over to our locals channel yet, what are you doing with your life? I don't get with it. You're Uh, missing out on the fun stuff. You're missing out on the fun stuff. We're going to have so much fun, new content. We've already dropped our first episode of quirks or quacks. That was super fun. We're going to be recording another one soon. Uh, That's where all of our bonus content is going to be. That's where we're going to be community building. So like you can join for free, hang out with us. Or if you want to get the bonus content, you know, make sure you guys go over to quirksofcreation.locals.com and come hang out with us. Exactly. And then when we do go to Arizona, you'll be able to see in our extra, in our bonus content, all the stuff that we find. There you go. There you go. It's like you're, it's like you're going with us. 
<laughs> we would love to take you with us. Yeah. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the the Grand Canyon is an excellent example of so many things with the flood, with the fossil record. It challenges a lot of the accepted narrative in that, like with the erosion and things like that. Um, another just po- point of interest that I'll bring up, and then I, I swear we'll move on to my other thing here. But oh, I love it. Uh, one thing that was brought up to me in my research was the idea of the sediment rocks again. So 5% of the Earth's crust is sedimentary rock. Right. The Earth's crust itself, the way that this um, person explained it, I can't remember their name at the moment, but I'll have it in the notes, was the crust of the Earth is like the eggshell on an egg. Like it's mm. so in s- scale. Very thin. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. It does make sense because compared to, uh, if you're thinking about the lithosphere, the very outer layer of the Earth's crust, beneath it is the athenosphere and the mantle, and then you get down into the core. Everything else is so much thicker. There's so much more going on below. And the lithosphere is just like this very thin layer. And that's why tectonic plates are so important because they're still moving. And they can only move because that layer is so thin relative to the rest of the planet. Exactly. Yes. And so when you have 5% of the Earth's crust, Earth's crust is sedimentary rock. You know, that's a very small bit of sedimentary rock. However, 75% of that, um, or it covers, that 5% covers 75% of the Earth's surface. Okay. Okay. Got you. So... You have this very little bit of sedimentary rock everywhere on the Earth's surface. And sedimentary rock is moved by water. Mm -hmm. Again, just questioning how all of those rocks would get all over. (laughs) I mean, the only way is to move it by water because it can move Mm -hmm. by wind. But wind isn't going to blow it from like Asia to here. Right, right. And it doesn't move, you know, the currents and the air is, right. I don't know. Again, I just think the flood makes so much sense there when you're questioning these things. Yes. So I'm going to get off this soapbox. <laughs> but this is, the, this is a little bit of evidence that stuff that we just don't hear a lot about. That's not right. questioned a lot. Um, like you said, this is the narrative. This is, um, how dare you question this? <laughs> what are you, an idiot? <laughs> Maybe, but I'm oh, asking I, questions I that one. It's like <laughs> none of the greatest discoveries in science would have ever happened if someone hadn't asked a question. Literally, yes. the scientific method is you start with a hypothesis. You know what a hypothesis is? A question. The question. Weird. Yes. Weird. So... And maybe only certain people get to ask questions. I'm just, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> the, the thing with this, this, I think the theme that we're seeing here before I move on to the next one too, is you have this narrative, like I said, this paradigm that everything fits under uniformitarianism and everything they're trying to fit this in my opinion that they're trying to fit this square peg in a round hole Mm -hmm. 
with making it all fit with evolution and uniformitarianism. And I think this next one is an even better example, like modern day example of this. So there was um, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, and she is a paleontologist. And in 2005, her and her team published their discovery of soft tissue that was found and preserved inside a 68 million year old T-Rex femur. Oof. Yeah. Soft tissue. Yes. Inside a 65 million year old femur. Right. And it's not just soft tissue that they found. Like it was um, detectable proteins like collagen, hemoglobin, which I think are more complex than you usually tend to break down into smaller ones, simpler ones as time goes on. I don't know if 68 million years is enough for them to break down. It's certainly enough because it's like in bones from, uh, you know, like a thousand years ago, you can't find soft tissue. Right. Right. And the narrative here too is like, well, any, anything above a million years old, there's no way you would find this. For sure. They're giving it a million years and then there's like no way you could find any of this stuff in here. Right. So I'm going to actually play this little clip from um, 60 Minutes. Ooh, I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, and just you can see her reaction to this whole thing and see it it just explains it well. So what happened next happened by mistake. Mary put some fragments of the bone in acid to dissolve away the outermost layer of mineral. But the acid worked too fast and all the mineral dissolved away. Being a fossil, there should have been nothing left. But there was, and it was elastic, like living tissue. This is the piece. (gasps) No. She showed us video she took under the microscope. That's really what happened? Yes. That's the dinosaur bone? Without mineral now. That's what was left. So, um, anybody who's just watching this, you can see this small little circular kind of thing. (laughs) Right. That's very elastic. She's pulling on it with uh, tweezers and you see it like she pulls and it bounces back and pulls and it bounces back. And that's the soft tissue that they found. It looked like the soft tissue she would have expected to find if it had been modern bone. This was impossible. This bone was 68 million years old. So you see this and you think, what? You say, I didn't you want say, to tell anybody. <laughs> you'd be ridiculed, yes. right? And so I, I said to my technician, okay, do it again. I don't believe it. And yet, in sample after sample, they were there. Things that looked suspiciously like flexible, transparent blood vessels. She finally mustered the courage to tell Jack. She said she dissolved the bone away and there were blood vessels. And, you know, I was like shocked. I mean, How could that be? How could that be? That's right. The things Mary was finding inside dinosaur bones, look at that, blood vessels, and even what seemed to be intact cells, pose a radical challenge to the existing rules of science, that organic material can't possibly survive even a million years, let alone 68 million. Mary Jack. So that's Dr. Mary Schweitzer. Wow. Yeah. And uh, her reaction first of all was just like no i don't believe this like <laughs> do it again and 
I also like, she didn't want to, she didn't even want to tell anybody about it because it was so challenging. That one blows my mind. Like, I just want to ignore this. (laughs) It's like when you find out something that you don't want to, that you, you, you just don't want to tell someone because you know, it's going to destroy their worldview. Right. Right. And I'm sure. Yes. And also, you know, there's that. And then the whole community is going to come at her. (laughs) Did they? Oh, they did. So before we jump into that, I want to explain that this isn't, this wasn't the first time that this had been found though. Um, it's just not very often that you get to just break apart a fossil and see what you find inside. Right. So what happened here, how she got these fragments is this dinosaur fossil or T-Rex fossil was really well preserved. I think it it was, it was in um, Montana. Mm. They were transporting it and had to break the femur in order to transport it. They gave her the fragments that were broken off of that femur. They put it back together, gave her fragments to play with. (laughs) And to just like investigate it, yeah. for those of you who didn't get to see the video, the fragments were really tiny. They were, And small. if you're thinking about something that ancient, you can't spare a lot of material. So Mm-mm. the, the fragments they gave her had to be super tiny. So I can just imagine being her. It's like, okay, I was given this super important material. I have to be very careful with it. Then she drops it in the acid and suddenly it's all gone. And <laughs> she must have just like in that moment, sheer panic. Like, what have I done? I've ruined this sample that I was given. That was, now I can't do any more tests on it. Except. Except. Yeah. What was left over. She didn't expect anything to be left over because nothing should have been left. Right. And she finds the presence of soft tissue, blood vessels, all, all of this. And again, didn't expect any of that. And. So this wasn't the first time that this had happened, actually, but it is rare simply because, like I said, to break fossils, it's like, don't don't do it. (laughs) It's a big deal. Yeah. But since this discovery, there have been more dinosaur soft tissue samples, Mm. and they have been found in dinosaurs that are said to be millions of years older than this T-Rex femur that she had. Her case is just arguably the most famous and she, sure, you know, took it, ran with it, did a lot with this um, stuff that she found. So um, I guess if you were in her shoes, like what conclusion would you draw from this? Maybe. Yeah, I would have to conclude that this creature, whatever it was, had to have died more recently than we were led to believe because there's no there's just no way that organic material would be preserved like that i know we all we all think of jurassic park and you have to remember jurassic park is fiction okay (laughs) dang it it is (laughs) and having that whole body of the mosquito and case in amber yeah that can happen and that can happen to insects but that doesn't happen to giant organisms like a t-rex so having a t-rex femur that's that's a big bone it's a big bone okay and it's still exposed it's not like it's perfectly encased in amber which doesn't erode as easily as sediment 
all of that bone should have been replaced right by minerals yes there should have been no organic material left absolutely not and yet and yet and yeah, she found it and it's been found again. So the fact that it's been found more than once tells you yeah. something really important because some people kind of come along and say, oh, she's faking it. She yep. falsified this data. And that yep. that's a legit claim. Scientists falsify data for for the grant, for fame, for like whatever it is they need. They falsify a lot often. But right. to have repeated experiments, that's a little bit different. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to talk about hers for a minute more, and then we're going to talk about a different one and kind of the conclusions that were drawn from that one, because you're on, absolutely on the right track. So yes, the first conclusion, there were like three conclusions brought up with this, not all at the same time, but throughout all of this. First, of course, this fossil could not be as old as they thought, but of course that's ridiculous. This fossil was found in a set of rock layers dated to the Cretaceous period that, that ranges from... For 145 to 66 million years ago. So. Super no, old. Yeah, it's super old. We're right. Like, that doesn't. Yes, you would think that, but no, that's that's wrong. So then after a while, there's a lot of debate because you're right. People are going to come at you like, no, you did not find what you think you found. And that's what that's what it was. Like, this was either contaminated, it's biofilm, this is bacteria, this is microscopic artifacts, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things thrown at her and at the whole finding. It's, you know, not just her personally, but sure. just this whole finding. Um, and so after this, Dr. Schweitzer, she's like, she did more work. She's like, I know what I found. I'm going to dig deeper into this and get an answer because she also agreed, like, there's no way that this is not 68 million years old. Right. But I also know it's not contaminated or biofilm. So what else could there be? Her hypothesis was that there could be a previously unknown preservation process capable of preserving the soft tissue and the proteins longer than 1 million years. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> this magical process that nobody's heard of did it. Yay. Now, she does have a theory, and I'll give her credit because she's done her job, which not a question, but she did. So her current theory is cross-linking, and the cross-linking has created the protein or has made the proteins become more resistant. Um, what she did was she took ostrich blood vessels. She immersed the blood vessels in um, different solutions, so water, a solution containing ion from hemoglobin and other various solutions, and kept a record of deterioration. Let me go back and explain cross-linking real quick because <laughs> that's, that's kind of a big deal. So cross-linking is like, um, I'm just, I just keep thinking of the image I have in my head, like the proteins, they cross-link and there you go. No. What you have is, and I can't find it in my notes and I'm really sorry. It, it makes me think of um, a type of polymerization. Is that what it is? So what happens is you have, you know, hemoglobin, which has iron, and that attracts and binds the oxygen to help it flow through our body with a cross-linking. So upon death, like when this T-Rex died, red blood cells, excuse me, ruptured and released the hemoglobin, then releasing the iron, 
Sure. And the iron can catalyze a Fenton reaction. And when the proteins cross-link, it makes them more resistant so they don't mm. degrade so fast. Okay. So th this would be a type of polymerization, this idea that um, certain molecules can undergo a chemical process and, and which they're literally linked together. Like you think of a chain. Have you ever made a daisy chain before? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. basically in this case, iron would be linking these different molecules together. And the more you have, the stronger they are. Uh, and certain types, I don't know if hemoglobin would do this or proteins would do this. Certain types are capable of absorbing a lot of water and retaining a lot of water. So that could allow it to, in theory, sustain itself for a while. But the conditions for something like that would have to be very precise because whenever I did something like that in a lab, it had to be highly controlled, oftentimes done in a vacuum in a nitrogen atmosphere, having anything around it could cross contaminate it and ruin the whole process. Right. And this dinosaur was not found in any pristine place. I mean, it was Montana and it wasn't, um, if you think it wasn't in permafrost either, you know, so Montana, it gets mm. hot, it gets cold, it gets right. hot and cold. And the, you know, there's radiation from the ground. There's all sorts of things. I'll get into the problems with this in a second, Ooh, but yeah. Ba yeah, but basically, so she tested this out on ostrich blood vessels and, you know, one set had was put in uh, water. Another was a solution, like I said, of the, iron from a, from hemoglobin and then other various solutions just to, you know, keep track of, just to see what the results would be. Sure. So after two years, when she looked at the ostrich blood vessels that were in the solution with the iron, mm -hmm. it showed that it was mostly undegraded. And um, that's great. That's really cool that there's something there to that. However, it's hard to extrapolate a lot from this because going from two years to 68 million years, that's a huge leap. <laughs> You're baking a lot. You're baking yeah. a, th those two years are doing a lot of heavy lifting. Exactly. I don't think she's making that claim necessarily, but she's like, you know, it's help helping. It's a start. It's a start. That's what I should say. Sure. It's a start for her hypothesis. So, um, but the problem again, like you said, so this is in a lab, which all the things you just said, it's a very controlled environment, right. nitrogen kept, you know, it's like minus 200 degrees. I think they said, does that sound some labs? Uh, yeah. So minus 200 degrees. Maybe that was wrong, but look in that liquid nitrogen, that's. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. would be in liquid nitrogen. I'm just thinking about polymerizations Obviously. I've done. Um, yeah. And you have to have some sort of temperature because if you just think about molecular motion, mm -hmm. right, you have right. to have heat in order for the molecules to have energy to move around in order to catalyze a certain chemical reaction. Do the if things. it's yep. too cold, you slow down that molecular motion and they stop moving and you reduce the rate of chemical reactions. This is why certain organic materials are better preserved in permafrost 
right? Because you don't have the chemical reactions moving as fast. So the rate of decay is occurring more slowly. I don't know how she could ever hope to perform a chemical reaction at that temperature, but it could make sense why the blood vessels were preserved after two years if she kept them on ice. Right, right. Oh, like, duh. (laughs) If I put meat in my freezer, it's going to be fine two years from now. Oh, my gosh. I know. So that's part of it. (laughs) That just Uh, makes me mad. (laughs) I know. I know. It was like, okay. And that, yeah. And it doesn't account for other things, too. So even if you set that big, big part aside, (laughs) it doesn't account for the radiation that this would have gotten, the, the femur would have had from the ground. It doesn't, you know, being in the ground all those years, it doesn't, um, just all the ways that you would try to preserve these things, because again, you have such a small, um, well, the ostrich blood vessels you would have plenty of, but still like you're not putting it outside. You're not putting it in the ground. It's kept in the lab in a very controlled environment. And the cold. Yeah. And the cold. And that again, <laughs> that's just huge. <laughs> that, that's like. You Wasn't talk it all about, preserved for two years? You talk about falsifying data, just like on the face of it. Now, I haven't looked at the study myself. But to me, that feels like intentional falsification. I'm not going to accuse her of anything, but right. that's just really suspicious. It's a little sus. Yeah. As the kids would say. As the kids would say. <laughs> so you have all of that to like... To argue with this. Right. And also, the Fenton reaction, what I read, it leaves a signature okay. from happening. So you would see that the red blood mm. vessels ruptured. You would see some sort of trace that this had happened, that this had occurred. Yeah. That wasn't... Did she find whole red blood cells, like, intact? I don't think so. And I don't think she even saw, okay. saw that. So I... I'm thinking that huh. that would be an, an, an assumption as yeah. well, that that had taken place in the first place. Mm-hmm. And um, even if, even if, and this is my question too, like even if it shows that this um, cross-linking works and slows down the degrading of soft tissue proteins right. so on, to extrapolate tens of millions of years from that like yes there could be something there but we're really stretching it with all these millions of years and it's just like sometimes the simplest answer is the answer sometimes scientists want to make things really super complicated and say all of these special exceptions happened. And don't get me wrong. There's lots of exceptions in science. I have to teach them all the time. Um, But sometimes the simplest explanation is the explanation. Right. Exactly. And that was my point in this too. There, um, the simplest explanation is that these fossils are not as old as they claim to be. So the first conclusion that you draw from finding this is it makes the most sense. I've said this before, Occam's razor, that same thing, the simplest explanation for that will account for circumstances is most likely the explanation. I think in this situation, creationists have a lot less explaining to do 
yeah. than an evolutionist does. You know, and again, it's still even a stretch to think that they would last 4,000, 5,000 years. Yeah. That's still a stretch, but I do think it's a lot less to explain than 68 million years or, or more. Because again, they've found more sense here that these and these fossils were older. Right. Um, so that, again, that's just another like piece of this where you ask questions and you look into this. There was um, a Dr. Kevin Anderson, who is a microbiologist. Um, and, he, and he is a creationist. So, you know, you take your biases with a grain of salt. But he found a triceratop horn in Montana, around the, roughly around the same area that mm. T-Rex was found. It was only a foot um, underground. And granted, it was in this... Yeah, it was only a foot. Wow. It was in this really hard stone. They still had to chisel it out. Sure. But when they pulled it out, it, there was water underneath it as well. So this horn is not only um, in these terrible conditions for a fossil to, like, stay in good condition, but it's definitely – there's no thermal protection. Oh, none. With a foot in the ground. And then the water would degrade things faster too. Yeah. Yeah. And yet he still found soft tissue and blood vessels, osteocytes, all these things, collagen. He found that all in that. Wow. Yes. Um, So it's still, it's still, again, for a creationist, he's still like, it's still hard to believe because even thinking it's four to 5,000 years old or so whatever, thousands right. of years old is still like, holy cow, how did this survive? And in those conditions, that's the lot. It, it makes me think that maybe dinosaurs didn't die as long ago as we think. <laughs> right, right. But that would be a simpler explanation yeah. than trying to take this idea of evolution and we found it, you know, the, the, um, T-Rex femur, for example, you know, we found it in this layer of the rock. So it means it's this old, that is a form of dating, but so is this. So is like looking at this tissue, but that's not an accepted form of dating in most of their minds. Like that's kind of like thrown out with the bathwater. We have all these other ones, like you've talked about earlier. We have these. We're good. We don't need to. Well, and there were some that were neglected even in radiometric dating. Like they didn't want to look at the amount of helium left over in the rock. Exactly. Even though that's a better indication of the the length of time that has passed. Because the rate of helium diffusion is better known and better traceable than uranium decay. And yet it doesn't fit. The paradigm that we're trying, you know, it doesn't fit the mold that we've created here. So, no. (laughs) It's like they're picking and choosing the pieces of evidence that they want us to focus on. Yes. Yes. And not to get too crazy with it. But it also now I'm wondering, like, what happened to the ones that were found before Dr. Schweitzer? Like. Maybe they were just too scared to talk about it. That's fair. But I'm also in the back of my mind, I'm like, Dr. Schweitzer was even afraid yeah. to publish this study. Yeah. Like, she didn't want to tell anybody. She didn't want to tell anybody. Yeah. 
So I could just as easily imagine that when maybe government agencies were more involved in archaeological dig sites, Mm. that certain pieces of data wouldn't be as widely accepted. Weird. 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 I know. Makes that's you for wonder. the quacky side of the show. That's, that's, we'll save that for our quacks. <laughs> but anyway, so it is interesting. I like asking these questions and again, not always finding the answer, but there's questions. They don't all have, they don't have all the answers either, even though you like evolutionists, for example, they don't have all the answers either. Right. In fact, I think they have a, a lot more questions than answers if you really were to push it. And so don't be afraid to push it. Ask yeah. the questions. I, I think that's what we're really getting at. It's yeah. like you we have to be willing to ask the question. You can't just you can't just say no, don't ask the question. And don't get me wrong, this is something that drives me crazy in certain churches. Like when mm-hmm. I was growing up, there were certain things you weren't allowed to question in the church yep. or like ask questions about. Yep. And that is frustrating too. So when you have this very rigid very religious, very, oh, I don't know, what is the word I'm trying to, just like this immovable cultish, cultish yeah. Nah, I don't know if you want to go that far, but still, you know what I'm saying. Just like this, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, just, yeah, immovable, this very unshakable faith that that we we have, but the other side has too. You, I don't know. That's not quite the way you want to say it, but. It it is certainly fi- dogmatic. You Thorian ah, got it right. Dogmatic. I love it. That's the word. That's it. Yes, it is very dogmatic. It's like this is the way it is. You're not allowed to ask a question about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that helps anybody because faith, when tested, should be able to hold up. Yes. Right. This is yes. why often in the Bible we are told to test our faith. Right. Yeah. We are we go through certain things, and if it holds up in the other side, we know our faith was placed in the right thing. No, God, God encourages us to question our faith. Test it. Yes. Yeah. Test it. Question it. Yeah. Just like if God's not big enough in your mind to handle your questions, your God is too small. Yeah. And that's a very small box to put him in. (laughs) Very small box. So if your God of science is not big enough to handle your questions, then your God, little G God is too small. Yes. Boom. And I think that's what we end on. Mic drop. Mic drop. (laughs) Just gets the mic drop. (laughs) Yay. So yeah, that's, that's it for the fossil record. I think we're going to talk more in the rumble chat with everybody. Ooh, yay. Can we do that? Yeah. Yeah. We can talk to everybody. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Let's More technical it. stuff we're because, figuring out. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like tonight's gone better. We're still learning how to do our new software. But thank you guys yeah. for sticking around. Audio listeners, remember, you can actually get the full episode, including the Rumble portion, if you go over to our locals. Remember, quirksofcreation.locals.com. Just come hang out with us over there. So much cool stuff is coming. And we're really looking forward to building this community with you guys. I'm so excited. I'm so excited too. And then next week, 
I am stoked for that. What do you got for us? <laughs> okay. Next week? So next week, I may be a little less quirky and a little more quacky, but it's going to be okay because we are going to be talking about science magic. That is magnetic fields and ley lines. Now, it's not going to be like super quacky, but it might be a little quacky. We're going to touch on the quacky bit. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for it. I'm here for it. It's going to be wait. fun. Because yep. there's definitely a scientific, obviously, there's a scientific basis for magnetic fields. How does that tie to ley lines? How does that tie to all of these ancient structures around the world, like the pyramids and stuff like that yeah well tune in for that next week that'll be fun it's gonna be good yay but thank you for being here you guys we're gonna go over and talk in the rumble chat and it was awesome to be with you guys on this friday night thank you so much yeah we'll see you guys there